morning. Welcome to the Backyard Professor videos. Biblical archaeology is what this series is about, and I'm going to describe why biblical archaeology is so interesting still in our day, right now, 2021. Almost 2022. And new developments have occurred. And these do affect why I am no longer a Mormon apologist. Because my understanding of Joseph Smith's understanding concerning the Bible has definitely changed. But before I get into all of that, I almost hesitate to do this. I hate doing this in some regards. In other regards, it is truly very helpful. If you wouldn't mind going to the backyardprofessor.org on the right hand side, there are donation options. You can do a one-time donation, a weekly donation, a monthly donation, an annual donation. And the reason that I would personally appreciate, sincerely, you donating is because I don't want to go out and buy a little red Corvette, <laughs> you know. No. I'm going to use these donations to further my ability to gather valuable information, materials, books, articles, cameras, so that I can keep producing these videos, so that by donating you help yourselves as well as me to enable myself to continue bringing you excellent materials. At least I hope they're excellent. They're excellent to me. <laughs> so, if there is a subject that you would like me to discuss, I will be happy to put that on the agenda as well. I have no problem doing that. I don't know very much. Not about a billion subjects, but if I do know about something, I'll be happy to share what research I can produce and find with you to help you in your lives. Because I know religion can be difficult, whether you're in it or out of it or transitioning or however. Anyway, let's get back to our regularly scheduled argy-bargy concerning biblical archaeology and why I am just interested in this subject. I have been for decades. It's never going to go away. So let's roll with the punches and see what is driving this wonderful adventure of exploration and discovery that is changing how we perceive the past, which changes our perception of our present and can improve our perception of our future. And there is the whole fun of all of this, yeah. To be alive involved in something that improves the human mind. Is there any more enjoyable greater goal? None that I can think of. And I really have to hustle to improve my mind because I am just so limited. However, here's my basic outline. My understanding of Joseph Smith is his intent was to produce a line of priesthood authority utilizing the biblical patriarchs. This is one reason I suspect why he emphasized this biblical, patriarchal, historical, literal approach to the Bible. If he could trace a line of authority right back to Adam, through the patriarchs, 
Adam, Abraham, Enoch, Moses, Noah, not necessarily in that order, of course. Melchizedek's a big one. Aaron, Moses, and Aaron, etc. Through that kind of an established authority, it aligns him to the basis of our Western civilization, the biblical patriarchs. So it's remarkably interesting to see the current, and, and we've been going at it for 200 years. I say we, meaning they, the archaeologists. I'm not an archaeologist. I, I really wish I would have done it different somewhat in the past. I would have been one, but I'm not, but I'm a student of the subject. I'll put it that way. Archaeology, history, things like that. So in the, uh, in the context here of discovering what it is archaeology has found out about the Bible in the last 200 years is remarkable. It's remarkable for a number of reasons. The one I focus on because at one point I was a, an apologist and I really did want to know what viability, what, uh, what context, what support does this most fascinating and often misunderstood subject of archaeology hold for Joseph Smith's claims to have that patriarchal line come up all the way up through him, into him, and, and then of course Mormonism wants to keep that line alive, and so they say every future prophet past Joseph Smith also is handed down that priesthood line. You know, Abraham had the records of the fathers, says in the Pearl Great Price book of Abraham. Uh, in the book of Moses, I believe, it might be in the book of Abraham, it could be in the book of Moses in the Pearl Great Price. We read how even Adam had a book of remembrance, right? And so this, this context, the the oral transmission, the literate transmission of the records of remembrance, the book of life. You get that way later in the Christian book of Revelation, you know. Uh, but, but this theme of connectivity, this theme of continuance from antiquity as a direct restoration to Joseph Smith, not just of ancient texts, but of ancient authorities, of ancient patriarchal lines, down through the most important people in the Bible, etc. That's what makes archaeology so much fun. Because based on the information that we have now, I can no longer subscribe to Joseph Smith's theme. And that's what I want to explain. That's one of the really interesting, remarkable features, right? Not in a spirit of antagonism, but in a spirit of discovery, in a spirit of how can we best understand this subject of biblical archaeology. Now, I'm, I'm, I told you in the last video I was going to go through all these books I have. William Dever, George, uh, or William Albright, P.R.S. Morey. Uh, you know, Philip R. Davies, I was going to discuss the minimalists with you and, and all of this stuff, and I'll get to that, I promise. But I found a, I, I forgot I had purchased this book. I just recently found it in my library doing my historical Jesus studies, and I said, oh wow, that's, that's a good one. I hadn't even read it yet. I had ordered it several months ago, and somehow it just got stuck away, so I reread it the other night. Utterly fantastic book. I, I was just blown away. The Quest for the Historical Israel. This is a discussion, a moderated discussion, in the Journal of Biblical Literature series uh, between Israel Finkelstein and Amihai Mazar, two exquisite biblical scholars. And it's edited by Brian B. Schmidt. I want to give just the summary ideas while I'm showing you some very, very beautiful biblical archaeological pictures in the process. So you don't have to just sit there and look at just my silly looking mug. You can enjoy the power and beauty 
of some of the discoveries that they found, some of the fantastic art. That's what I want to do for you because I love you, my audience. Without you, I am nothing. Boom. Okay. Time to get serious, and that's rare because I'm never serious. Seriously. If you can't laugh and have fun a little bit in life, you're doing something truly wrong, my friends. Even when we're studying serious stuff like God, salvation, exaltation, celestial kingdom, heaven, hell, Bible, Book of Mormon, Purgate, whatever you want to do, Buddhism, Hinduism, the Tao Te Ching, doesn't matter. Sometimes you have to smile while you're learning about the eternities. Yes! I love Alan Watts' idea. This whole creation is God dancing and playing. I love that. I, I don't care if you like him or not. That's good stuff right there. So, the theme here on biblical Israel is simply this. There were two main divisions, the German and the Anglo-American traditions that Finkelstein discusses in his opening uh, of this particular conference. The Anglo-American school is essentially the conservative approach, Finkelstein informs us. He describes the minimalist position. Now there's been a new, there's been an arising of the minimalist traditions. Some of these are Philip R. Davies, Memories of Ancient Israel. Another one is Lemke. I believe his first name is Peter. It's been a while since I've read this. No, Niels Peter Lemke. Yeah, you've got to give him credit, right? The Israelites in History and Tradition. And then you have a, that, that's not a minimalist. And that, Now, Thomas L. Thompson has become a minimalist, but his book, The Historicity of the Patriarchal Narratives, it's a giant gigantic book. It's based on his PhD. They banned this book from, from being published and distributed. The Quest for the Historical Abraham. Uh, and he just completely, solidly refutes William F. Albright's support of the patriarchal period. I thought it was fabulous. I, I was blown away. And I really haven't seen a lot of negative reviews of this particular book. But some of his later work is quite controversial, and it's unfortunate. He, he's become a minimalist, and he really, he's not as good uh, at biblical archaeology as William Dever or, or uh, Mazar, or even Finkelstein is. And then John Van Cedars, Abraham in History and Tradition. Fabulous analysis, very detailed, very scholarly. Uh, so anyway, and then William Dever has been fighting these guys for decades. He really doesn't like them. There's no love lost between them, even though they are scholars that keep in touch and communicate back and forth. Now, to get on with my presentation, so I don't make this a five-long-hour snore-fest, I'm going to take a page out of my dear friend Radio Free Mormon. Okay, here's the deal. <laughs> You'll get it if you watch his debate with the Midnight Mormons. You really should. On with the deal. Here's how Finkelstein describes the minimalist position. Biblical history totally lacks an historical basis, and its character is a largely fictional composition or wholly imaginative history and is motivated by the theology of the time of its compilation in the Persian or the Hellenistic periods. And this is centuries after the alleged events took place with which are recorded in the Bible. At best it contains only vague and quite unreliable information about early Israel, yet the continuing power of the biblical narrative is testimony to the literary skill of the authors as they produced a compelling propagandistic work to a highly receptive public. Finkelstein, however, notes that 
archaeological surveys, settlement studies, and extra-biblical historical records, all of this converges with the biblical traditions at numerous points, having to do with geographical and historical matters pertaining to the Iron Age. He asks rhetorically whether or not this is a mere coincidence. And then he goes on to describe such a possibility as amazing and the extensive administrative details in the Deuteronomistic history, Deuteronomy or Joshua through 2 Kings, unnecessary, that is, if it is purely a mythic history. That's the question. So, Archaeology, according to Finkelstein, is the only real-time witness to events described in the biblical text, particularly those relating to the formative phases of early Israelite history. This is so because the biblical text is dominated by theological and ideological themes of the authors and their times. Preserved in the biblical traditions are older myths, tales, and memories that served as the nuclei for the stories composed by biblical authors. Although older stories can on occasion and in exceptional cases be detected in the biblical texts, more typically they are preserved in such a manner that reflect multiple layers and multiple realities from an earlier past and at other times too well integrated with the ideology of the later biblical authors to be isolated in any meaningful way. Now how Amahai Mazar describes this very interesting situation. He employs the findings of archaeology as an independent witness, if not the primary witness, to the ancient historical reality, and as a litmus test for assessing the historical relevance of any given biblical text. Archaeology for Mazar remains invaluable in spite of the subjective aspects of the enterprise, Mazar's provisional conclusions regarding the historical relevance of the biblical text is that in spite of the literary creativity and ideological biases of the biblical writers, as well as the presence of textual complexities resulting from other mediating influences, blocks of biblical materials may have historical relevance and may even preserve ancient pre-Israelite local memories. He lists as examples of what he deems as earlier materials and sources the following the archives in Jerusalem's temple library, palace archives, public commemorative inscriptions on the analogy provided by the Mesha and the Tel Dan inscriptions, oral transmission of ancient poetry, for example, Genesis chapter 49, Deuteronomy chapter 32, and Judges chapter 5, all of which Frank Moore Cross, the great Dead Sea Scroll and Biblical scholar and student of William F. Albright, also wrote extensively on. Folk and aetiological stories noted in the remote past. For example, portions of the Exodus and conquest narratives, the deeds of the judges in ancient Israel, and the biographical information on King Saul, David, and Solomon, and historiographic writings explicitly mentioned by the biblical writers. For example, the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Archaeology, functioning as a control tool, offering increased objectivity, is now the understanding. This is how archaeology is now grasped. 
Mazar cites as an example of this the convergence, that is the coming together, of historical data from the Assyrian royal inscriptions, the Mesha inscription, the Tel Dan inscription. This is the famous one that mentions the House of David, so King David's name at least has now been attested and the biblical text. Mazar concludes that these written sources, when all of them are taken together, confirm that the general historical framework of the Deuteronomist history relating to the 9th century BCE was based on reliable knowledge of that time period. Even so, Mazar remains more skeptical about the modern enterprise of writing an accurate history of early Israel, and especially when it comes to the earliest stages of Israel's past. He imagines the historical perspective, that which is preserved in the Bible, as a telescope looking back in time. The farther back one goes from what Mazar views as the pivotal period of biblical composition, that is the 8th to 7th centuries BC, the more imaginative, symbolic, distorted, and foggier the past becomes. In addition, one must take into account the impact of such factors as distortion, selectivity, memory loss, even censorship, and ideological or personal bias might have brought to bear on the composition of the resulting biblical traditions. In other words, it is certainly a compilation of humans by humans for humans. Yes, this is the theme. This is how biblical archaeology has now come to the fore of examining the ancient historical context as well as the ancient texts of all of the other various nations throughout all of the ancient ecumen. In the early days, conservative scholars deployed archaeology. Now this is Israel Finkelstein. This is Israel Finkelstein's idea, and then I will get to Mazars in a minute. In the early days, conservative scholars deployed archaeology to help defeat the higher criticism of scholars such as Julius Wellhausen. William F. Albright, followed by his students and their disciples in our own days, he has in mind William G. Dever as one, they promoted the idea that archaeology can prove the Bible correct and the critical scholars wrong. Two main case studies were put to the test, the conquest of Canaan and the great united monarchy of King Solomon. But the truth of the matter is that archaeology was not given center stage in that debate. It was used only in order to support a preconceived theory. Archaeology played the role of supplying decorative evidence for a history that was a modern, almost word-for-word, rewriting of the biblical story. By doing so, scholars of the conservative school promoted historical and archaeological reconstructions that had no actual support in any of the archaeological finds or historical finds and or were trapped in circular arguments. Every monarch who was mentioned in the Bible in relation to activities in the Gulf of Aqaba was granted an archaeological stratum. Gluck interpreted the remains of the first period, including what he described as flue holes, air channels, hand bellows, clay crucibles, and furnace rooms as evidence for a huge copper smelting industry in the days of King Solomon. 
Gluck went so far as to dub Easy and Gieber as the Pittsburgh of Palestine. And King Solomon, a copper king, a shipping magnet, a merchant prince, and a great builder. This romantic image later proved to be a fantasy. A wishful illusion based on the biblical text rather than on actual archaeological evidence. This is one of the issues I've been saying brings to fore the new approach and new information we are gaining now from biblical archaeology. Now he goes on to describe the rise and fall of the minimalist school. According to a recent group of biblical scholars described as minimalists or deconstructionists, that would be uh, Thomas L. Thompson, uh, Lemke, Phillips, Davies, etc. They say the historical material in the Bible that pertains to the Iron Age is a late composition dating to the Persian or even to the Hellenistic periods. In other words, this dates to the 5th to 2nd centuries BC. It is a largely fictional composition motivated by theology, the minimalists argue, of the time of its compilation, which occurred centuries after the alleged events took place. So it contains only vague and quite unreliable information about the origins and early history of Israel. So according to these scholars, the continuing power of the biblical narratives is testimony to the literary skills of the writers themselves, who stitched together old myths, folk tales, imaginary records, legendary narratives, and a few memories of historical facts about the 9th to the early 6th centuries BC into a single saga of apostasy and redemption. Well, this revision theory of the Bible's utter lack of historical value had its own logical and archaeological inconsistencies. First of all, as the biblical scholar William Schneidewind, oh, and his book is excellent, I, I truly, really think that's a fabulous book, has indicated literacy and extensive scribal activity in Jerusalem in the Persian and early Hellenistic periods were much less influential than the literary activities were influential in the 7th century B.C. The assumption is inconceivable that in the 5th or 4th or even the 2nd centuries BC, the scribes of a small out-of-the-way temple town in the Judean mountains authored an extraordinarily long and detailed composition about the history, the personalities, the events of an imaginary Iron Age Israel without using ancient sources. The sheer number of names, lists, and details of royal administrative organization in the kingdom of Judah that are included in the Deuteronomistic history seems unnecessary for a purely mythic history. In any event, if they are all contrived or artificial, their coincidence with earlier realities is amazing. Archaeological excavations and surveys have confirmed that many of the Bible's geographical listings, for example, of the boundaries of the tribes and of the districts of the kingdom, these closely match settlement patterns and historical realities in the 8th and 7th centuries BC, not in the later Persian and Hellenistic periods. Equally important, the biblical scholar Baruch Halpern showed that a relatively large number of extra-biblical historical records, mainly Assyrian, verify 9th to 7th century BC events described in the Bible. So now we have an outside source 
for biblical history. This is very important. The mention of Omri in the Mesha Stila, the mention of Ahab and Yehu in the Shalmaneser third inscriptions, Hezekiah, the mention of Hezekiah in the inscriptions of Sennacherib, Manasseh in the records of Esarhaddon and Ashurbanipal, and so on. Now we have many exterior historical sources from other nations mentioning biblical personalities, names, places, events, and customs. I wanted to give you a brief overview of the archaeological context thinking and the new information we have because of the discoveries of many other nations who also were literate in the 7th century BC. Not the 3rd, the 4th, not the 4th, the 3rd, and the 2nd like the minimalists claim. Here is the summary of biblical archaeology for this particular issue. Archaeology is the only real-time witness to many of the events described in the biblical text, mainly for the pre-9th century BC formative periods. Biblical history cannot be read as a modern chronicle. It is dominated by the theological and the ideological themes of the authors. Biblical history cannot be read in a simplistic way from early to late. Rather, the point of departure must be a thorough knowledge of the social, also of the economic, and also of the geopolitical realities of the composition period, which was in late monarchic times. <coughs> Excuse me. There are many old stories in the text. This is understood by all. But they are described in a way that fits the ideology of the later authors. Many of the texts are comprised of several layers. Only archaeology and extra-biblical sources can help identify and separate them. And this is beginning to occur on multiple fronts. The starting point for the compilation of the biblical text is the sudden growth of Judah to full statehood as a direct outcome of the fall of the northern kingdom to the Assyrians and the integration of Judah into the global economy of the Assyrian kingdom. Had such guidelines been applied from the outset of the modern biblical historical enterprise, we would not have wasted a century on futile research. Very powerful information on biblical archaeology and extra outside sources, which is showing that there actually is more valid history in the Bible than we have heretofore supposed, but not necessarily as it happened, but as it was written centuries later with the ideological bias of the authors of a later era concerning their own era. That is what Joseph Smith missed. That's why it's so important to grasp this new understanding of biblical archaeology. And now for part two of my look into biblical archaeology, the patriarchal period. I am again using the quest for the historical Israel, debating archaeology and the history of early Israel between Israel Finkelstein and Anahai Mazar. This is a Society of Biblical Literature production for 2007. Professor Finkelstein isolates the patriarchal stories as a litmus test for what we can presently know about the historical relevance of the biblical traditions. 
since these stories, with their compelling literary artistry and canonical status, hold a special place in the Judeo-Christian tradition to which much of earlier scholarship was so closely attached. He reviews failed attempts of the past at identifying the historical Abraham in the late 3rd to early 2nd millennium BC. These include the now well-known proposals that Abraham was a nomad immigrant invader, donkey caravaneer of Amorite origin, whose contemporaries instigated the sudden collapse of the early Bronze Age urban system of the Levant, or that Abraham was a tent dweller, who situated himself near major cities of the Middle Bronze period as portrayed in the Mari texts or that Abraham and his relatives observed such social and legal practices as the provision of surrogate mothers and adopted slaves for childless parents that are preserved in the second millennium tablets from Nuzi in the northern Iraq. Other scholars long ago identified telling anachronisms in the patriarchal stories that point to their much later compositional setting in the 8th to 7th centuries BC, the time of the late Judite monarchy. He lists the late domestication of camels, the first millennium prominence of the city of Gerar, the frequent mention of neighboring peoples and polity polities that did not exist as distinct political entities until the first millennium, such as the Arameans and the Transjordan groups like the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and references to cities and places that are attested or only existed within the context of the Assyrian or else the ancient Babylonian empires of the first millennium. All these and more indicate for Finkelstein a 7th century background is the most likely one for the compilation of the early version of the patriarchal narratives. These and similar details cannot be dismissed as mere incidentals and later editorial additions since they are central elements in the narrative plots in the patriarchal stories. And so they point to the date and the message of the text as well as to its implied audience. For Finkelstein, the message, the message is essentially one advocating Judah's preeminence over the northern territories as described and understood and articulated by the 7th century B.C. scribes. These writers produced the Bible's historiographic narratives under the impetus of Josiah's ideological reforms and agenda of expansion. Well, when it comes to the biblical text's historical relevance, for reconstructing Israel's earliest stage of history in the second millennium BC now, that's where the Bible says the history occurred in time, but that is not when the biblical records were written. Whether on the basis of the patriarchal stories, or the Exodus story, or else the conquest of Canaan, Professor Mazar articulates a position in which the old traditions from the second millennium were initially passed down orally and then written down in the first millennium. And to be sure, many aspects of the accounts, these have been lost, they have been distorted, they've been changed over time, and in other cases only generally coincide with what we know about this particular period of time, the patriarchal period. So, while some important elements 
demonstrate direct correlations with the biblical traditions. Others stand in direct contradiction in isolated biblical accounts. In any case, Mazar does not assume that the biblical stories themselves are necessarily historically accurate or that the human characters in them are historical figures. That has not yet been found. So, here is some of the background that Joseph Smith did not understand in his day. I mean, no one in his day understood this. So, even with his prophetic insight now, Joseph Smith still did not understand the actual nature of biblical history. That is one of the sticking points to accepting his version of the Bible, for me. Concerning the formative periods in the history of biblical Israel, and the biblical descriptions of this era in the history of ancient Israel that does not deal with actual events in the second millennium BC. It's more complicated because much of the evidence is actually negative now and we've been working at this for 200 years. So it's difficult to present. In addition, we're dealing with two different compilations in the Old Testament record, the Pentateuch and the Deuteronomist history. And many scholars have understood these represent different phases in the authorship process. Joseph Smith assumed it was all just one singular story written steadily as it happened chronologically through history by the claimed authors whom the story is about. Moses wrote the first five books of the Pentateuch, etc., right? Well, many of the early biblical archaeologists now, they were also trained as theologians. And this is really critical, because this, this is what the atheists have had a heyday with. So it was essential for them to accept that God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was given to actual people who represented the earliest history of ancient Israel. And this is Joseph Smith's stance as well, right? The biblical scholar and archaeologist Roland DeVoe noted that if the historical faith of Israel is not founded in history, such faith is erroneous and therefore our faith is also. And this is the stance that Mormon apologetics takes. And that is why it has failed. They tie their faith to history, but the history is not valid in the Bible as interpreted literally as the Mormon apologists and Joseph Smith interpret it. Archaeology has no verifiability of that patriarchal era, literally. Basically, we might have the outlines of an authentic ancient historic reality, but not as detailed presented in the Old Testament. That's the downside of the literalism. It was the elements such as personal names and land purchase laws in the stories of Genesis that may be found in the records of 2nd millennium BC Mesopotamian societies. And it is from these Mesopotamian societies which the patriarchs ostensibly originated. No less important, the patriarchs are described as conducting a Bedouin way of life moving with their flocks through the hill country of Canaan these elements convinced Albright that the age of the patriarchs was an historical reality, so his method was such that he began to search for evidence for the presence of pastoral groups of Mesopotamian origin in Canaan around 2000 BC. 
and that was a date that seemed to fit the biblical chronology of the patriarchs in Albright's understanding. Yes? His hypothesis was the most influential of all attempts to locate the patriarchs on historical and archaeological grounds. Canaan of the 3rd millennium BC, the early Bronze Age now, was characterized by full-blown urban life. Large cities developed in the lowlands. They were surrounded by formidable fortifications. They were accommodated palaces and temples. Then in late 3rd millennium BC, this flourishing urban system collapsed. The cities were destroyed and abandoned. Many of them never recovered from the aftershock. In addition, many of the rural settlements around them were abandoned. What followed was a period covering a few centuries that reflected a very different culture with no large cities, when most of the population, uh, at least as believed by the archaeologists in the 1950s and 60s, that is, was practicing a pastoral nomad mode of subsistence before urban life gradually recovered. And when Canaan entered a second urban period, that of the Middle Bronze Age in the early 2nd millennium BC. Albright placed the spotlight on the period between the two urban phases, the Intermediate Bronze Age, which he labeled Middle Bronze I, and he and other scholars of the time argued that the collapse of the early Bronze urban culture was sudden, and that it was the outcome of an invasion of pastoral nomads from the fringe of the deserts in the northeast. He identified the invaders with the Amorites, or the Amaru, of the Mesopotamian texts. Albright and his followers dated the Abraham episode in the Genesis stories to this place in the history of Canaan. And he suggested that Abraham, a caravaneer of high repute, took part in the great trade network of the 19th century BC. And we have texts from that period of time from Kultepe near the city of Kayseri in central Turkey. And what these attest to is prosperous trade relations between Mesopotamia and Anatolia. So this parallels the Ur to Haran movement of Abraham in Genesis chapter 11. This is all Albright's construction of how biblical archaeology proved the Bible and the patriarchs real. And then he goes on describing in the Joseph story in Genesis, in both cases donkeys were used as the beasts of burden. Nelson Gluck supplied apparent archaeological substantiation his surveys in Transjordan and the Negev Desert reveal hundreds of intermediate Bronze Age sites, which for Albright provided the background system for the stories about Abraham's activity in the South. Well, the Amorite hypothesis didn't last long, because as they kept excavating most scholars came to the conclusion that the early bronze urban system did not collapse overnight suddenly like Albright wanted it to do, but declined gradually over many decades, due more to local economic and social upheavals within Canaan rather than to a wave of outside invaders. In addition, it became clear that the term Amorite was not restricted to pastoral people, it also included village communities of the early second millennium. So the Albright idea basically collapsed as further archaeological evidence kept going. And that has not stopped from the 1950s all the way up to right now today, 2021, and it has continually changed our perception of not only early Israel, which we now have discovered is actually real, but not as portrayed in the Old Testament, but also of the patriarchal narrative, which has found no extra historical support for its existence. That's the downside of the patriarchal narrative of Joseph Smith 
and his literalness. With the continuity of architecture, pottery styles, and settlement patterns, it suggests that the population of Canaan in this interurban phase was predominantly indigenous. It didn't come from outsiders. It was from within Canaan itself. The same people would reestablish urban life in Canaan in the cities of the Middle Bronze Age. That's really important because Israel, we have now learned, was Canaanites. They just simply flowed out. Israel was never a separate ethnic identity nation until they left their own Canaanite population. That's really important. Mark Smith describes that in several of his texts on polytheism in early Israel because of the Canaanite influence and why later Israel, much later, ended up being monotheistic with a national deity, Yahweh, who came from the Canaanite pantheon of the gods. Yahweh was not an original. He was a derivative deity. Mark Smith in his texts show that in the early history of God also. To make a long story short, the biblical story of the patriarchs is not the story of Middle Bronze Canaan. Albright's thesis is simply false. And yet that was the basis of a lot of Hugh Nibley's arguments about the historicity of the patriarchs, giving us proper background for the Book of Abraham and the Pearl of Great Price, etc. In his book, An Approach to the Book of Abraham, and all that. So all of that historical, that historical material, none of it works. None of it. So uh, the nomads living near city dwellers was not restricted to the Middle Bronze period. So as for the names of the patriarchs, they were also common in later periods as well, both in the Late Bronze Age and in the Iron Age. So they were not unique. And that is, that is one of the great discussions of Thomas L. Thompson in his text, The Historicity of the Patriarchal Narratives. Very, very powerful refutation of William F. Albright. I had no idea he'd been refuted so powerfully. And then, like I say, Thomas Thompson fell off the bandwagon and went into the minimalist camp. Not very good. So, needless to say, there were no Philistines in Canaan in the Middle Bronze Age. In a state, in a period prior to the establishment of the monarchy in Israel in the 9th century B.C. is when they emerged later. So, the stories represent the ideology and the needs of the period when the stories were set down in writing, not when the events supposedly occurred. And we now know that literacy occurred between 9, well, 8 and 700 B.C. Abraham is said to have lived way back, 1400 B.C. or earlier. There was no stories be able to be written down back that early. Not in Mesopotamia, not in Assyria, not, in, uh, not anywhere in the Fertile Crescent, not up in Anatolia or Turkey, not in Israel. So the biblical scholar Julius Wellhausen proposed over a century ago that the stories of the patriarchs, these reflect the concerns of the Israelite monarchy. And these were projected onto the lives of legendary fathers in a mythic past. And John Van Cedars and Thomas Thompson, I was just talking about both those, they argue even in later texts, uh, they do contain some early traditions. The selection and arrangement of stories expressed a clear message by the biblical editors at the time of compilation, 700 BC. We don't know any of the philosophy or ideology of the patriarchs from their era. What we read about is the concerns of those living who put the stories into the Old Testament from a 700 B.C. vantage point. That completely escaped Joseph Smith. He just simply accepted it as woodenly literal historical, 
Oh, Abraham thought this. Well, then that's what he thought. That was his personality. Oh, Abraham traveled over here and accomplished this. He fought the ten kings of the plain and defeated them. Oh, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek and all that. None of that concern was in the early Bronze Era. That was all concern for the political ideology of those later people in 700 BC who wrote down those stories of the patriarchs. What we are reading in the early patriarchal stories are the concerns of 700 BC Israel. And that's very problematic for Joseph Smith's understanding of the historicity of the Old Testament. We still have no archaeological evidence at all. We still have no place to situate the patriarchs in either time or geography, very similar to the Book of Mormon Nephites and Lamanites, either in North America, Central America, or Mesoamerica, or South America. We don't know where they belong. We can't find them, right? We have the same problem here. And it is a huge problem for a verifiable theology based supposedly in historic reality. Therein lies the problem. Uh, the, the attempt to establish a line of authority is really a good attempt on Joseph Smith's part. There's no question about that. Is it real? I'm sorry, I'm afraid not. At least not based on what we currently possess with the archaeological, historical, and linguistic record. The literacy, Adam having a book of remembrance, passing that book down to his son Seth, those books being passed down to Enoch, Enoch passing them down, Abraham having the records of the fathers, Moses writing the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. None of that has any reality to it. They couldn't have because literacy did not occur in the Fertile Crescent until the Sumerian, Mesopotamian, Assyrian, Babylonian, and Israel groups got to down to centuries later to the 7th and 6th century BC. Then writing began to occur. And that's the defect of Joseph Smith's take on it. While it is a noble outlook, I mean, from the very start, humans have had writing, you know, the idea there is really cool, but it's just not real. It's based on a fantasy. So, that's essentially what I have for you on the biblical archaeology and why I don't think it supports Joseph Smith much at all, at least from the Old Testament patriarchal narrative, which that is exactly where Joseph Smith placed the most emphasis on the Old Testament was in the patriarchal era. It was all a fantasy, which is too bad. Now, understand this. We take the Bayesian approach, properly and rationally so. And what I mean by this is, were new materials, new evidence, to be discovered that does begin to bring in the patriarchs into proper historical perspective and focus, then with that new evidence we adjust our understanding and possibly adjust our beliefs. If through the decades and centuries the evidence simply does not show up, then we are at this time provisionally with our human fallibility, yet we are justified in saying that's not real. 
and therefore Joseph Smith's interpretation doesn't cut the mustard. It doesn't make the grade yet. But it is not out of an obstinate, mean-spirited, apostate approach that we say no to Joseph Smith's interpretation. It is simply based upon either the acquisition of evidence or the failure of evidence to show up. At this point, the evidence does not bear up the faith. The faith can't change this status. Only evidence can do so. So with that in mind, we say Joseph Smith's story, his interpretation, his idea, sounds delightful. It's wonderful. I mean, would that there really was a tie back to such fantastically impressive figures such as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, the story of Jacob's ladder, that is one of the most spiritually important stories in the Old Testament. The Akedah, Abraham sacrificing Isaac. How the Jews have used that to build their spirituality. Does that mean their spirituality is fake? Not necessarily. Does that mean that their faith is false. If in a literal historical based faith imagining that the historical aspect of it was real, then yes, their faith is false. But if there is a different type of interpretation, and the Jews assure us that there truly are, all you have to do is read the Zohar, the Kabbalah, yeah, the Sefer Yetzirah, the Bahir, the interpretation using metaphor and analogy with which literalists make so much fun of, that may be their salvation to retaining a value to the old legends and mythologies of the Old Testament, not because they actually happened. To the Jews, that is the weakest possible way to interpret the Scripture. There are many ways of looking at the Scripture. A literalist poo-poos everybody else and says, no, if you're not a literalist, you can't be part of us. The Jews, fortunately, are much, much more all-inclusive in their, in, in their uh, ability to intellectually, spiritually, philosophically incorporate information, integrate the new archaeological materials than the Mormons ever have been. The Mormons need to take a lesson and unfortunately, if they would quit worrying about reading only church-approved literature, if they would just get on to studying the Jewish Kabbalah, I mean the leaders. Yes, there are several of the individual Mormons who have that kind of wisdom to go that route so that we can enhance our understanding. But I mean the leaders, the, the guys who are just so narrow-minded. If they would open up a little bit, they might find they don't have so much problems of keeping people in the boat. As if that's supposed to be the ultimate goal. Isn't the church designed, isn't it supposed to help individuals elevate their spirituality? Instead, they hold them back. They hold them down. They keep in the same small circle of discourse. They don't want them to learn anything. Joseph Smith, thank you, Radio Free Mormon. I'll give you a shout out, my good friend. He told me this one. He said, Joseph Smith said, It is my province to find hidden mysteries and teach them to the people. Yeah, 
I mean, I wish the leaders of today's Mormonism would wake the hell up and reintegrate Joseph Smith's love of learning. Why haven't you restarted the School of the Prophets officially? Come on. You need something to work. Your money isn't keeping people in your faith, is it? So perhaps maybe a beam from heaven, a revelation from heaven, will finally settle down on these guys and say, yo, hey, there's a lot more scripture. There's a lot better ways to approach spirituality as well as truth than just your own idiotic simpleton way. Maybe you ought to open up a little bit and come up to snuff. Catch up to your brethren in Israel, the Jews, Judah. Judah has so far surpassed Joseph in spirituality, there is no contest. Let them brag they have the Melchizedek priesthood and their second anointings in their temple. Who gives a flying flip? So it's all about them, them, them. Look at all the miracles that's happening to me. Who cares? Other than a couple of percent of one percent of the people of the earth, their own followers. So anyway, now I'm now I'm ranting and raving. I don't mean to rant and rave. I wanted to share this information with you. In my next in my next video in this series, uh, I will begin to discuss some details from uh, Dever. William Dever is really important, and I want to uh, I want to catch up on on some of the ideas on the the missed theological opportunity that Joseph Smith never did grasp, and of course today's brethren forget them uh, based on direct archaeological and historical evidence of the ancient Hebrew goddess how archaeology has brought out the female element of deity for real. She was actually in the ancient Jerusalem temple. Now, if you want to go ahead and try to pretend to me, Joseph Smith gave us a true restoration of the original Israelite theology, then you better wake up and smell the coffee because he missed the singular most important element. He mentioned her, but that's not what she was. She wasn't just a word. Oh, mother. No, she was an absolute integral part of the ritual in the temple. Very interesting how that works out. And then I've got Frank Moore Cross, and then I'll, I'll, I'll discuss some Mark Smith and uh, some more Israel Finkelstein and Mills Asher Silberman. Oh, and I've got some fabulous updates on Eugene Sage. Unfortunately, this book is very difficult to get. I'm really sorry to hear how expensive it's gotten. But So anyway, uh, be good to all. Have fun. Thanks for watching my Backyard Professor video. Fun stuff. Use this brain. So, you guys have a happy Thanksgiving also. <laughs> I'll probably get this posted after Thanksgiving. So, I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving a day ago. <laughs> Or whenever I get this posted, but be grateful. Be grateful for all of our blessings, absolutely. Especially dear friends like you are to me, and hopefully I can be to you. And uh, we'll just kind of spiral upward together, up toward and into the light. All right, I gotta quit. I gotta quit. I'll ramble forever and I'll put you to sleep. So I love all you guys. You're awesome.